0: Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design on behalf of RMIT University. And I'm here with a very adventurous person, Sally Dan Cuthbert. She established the gallery Sally Dan Cuthbert a couple of years ago, probably at the worst possible time, looking back, when COVID was about to hit. Uh, Welcome to the program, Sally. Thank you. Thank you
1: for having me. Yes, it was a very adventurous time and i keep being asked the question would i have done it knowing and i think you know just uh, i actually don't even know the answer to that question because there's always those comments that you hear from people saying that you know if you open a new work through adversity you know sometimes you end up being stronger so um you know probably the answer is i wouldn't have i may have postponed it but i'm glad that i haven't
0: Sally, it's an interesting gallery. It's in uh, Rushcutters Bay in Sydney, probably the only one of its type. I mean, if you go to London, for instance, you'll see the David Gill Gallery, you'll see the Carpenters Workshop Gallery, which for people who don't know what um, what the idea is, it's basically selling design and furniture in the realm of art. But There must be a, a better explanation for what you're doing. How would you describe um, the gallery and what was the influence or inspiration? Did it come from the David Gill?
1: Um, So I wasn't trying to mimic uh, any other existing gallery, but obviously I am very well aware of those galleries and visited those galleries. Um, you know, I come from an advisory background. I've been a fine arts advisor for more than 28 years. And as an advisor on art, I spend a lot of time in clients' homes uh, and also I advise some corporations. So when you're on an advisory side, the actual placement of objects is um, is, is really, really important. As much as trying to acquire the best piece uh, possible for your client, it's also, you know, you are responsible for then actually locating it. And over the time, I guess I was working with clients that um, had extraordinary homes, often multiple homes, and really adventurous corporations who were, were working with great architects, designers to create stimulating environments for their clients and their staff. And, you know, I was integrated into that, into setting up wonderful art collections for these people. And it really stemmed, I guess, from my interest in um, seeing the arts um, as all-inclusive and holistically. You know, I... I'm not someone that likes to box things, so I've never been someone that's sort of it's, well, that's a ceramic or that's a painting. You know, it is a work of art. And for me, design, um, or what we try and like to call them in the gallery as functional sculpture, is just part of that. So, um, and, you know, there's a history of architects making pieces for their, their buildings, um, and artists have often ventured into different uh, pieces that sometimes have gone into public work that have become more functional rather than just visual objects. So I think there's a long history of, of all sorts of artisans, uh, Jacques and Matti, different people like that, working across different um, platforms within in the art. And so I really got interested in, in working with those clients and seeing where the pieces were going and um, wanting them to broaden um, their interest in maybe not just collecting um, two or three D visual art, but also looking at the furniture and design objects that these works were um, hung above or next to, and um, you know create uh, interest in collecting more broadly than just in the visual arts.
0: Um, Sally, you know both your home, which has been featured in Vogue Living. Um, and also, your gallery just contains such an extraordinary collection of pieces. You've got everyone from Mark Newson. You know, how do you start the collection? How does it evolve? Who are the, who are the artists and all the designers that you were perhaps had in mind from the outset before you even established the gallery? Because, you know, you obviously had people in mind who you thought would bring in people who would
1: be interested. Yeah, so I, I do have to have um, an immediate reaction to, to pieces. I feel quite strongly about that. Um, so I look for artists that are working either um, with uh, intuitively or with new materials or using materials in interesting ways or for someone um, like Trent Janssen who works through history um, and storytelling. And I think they're probably the three main areas, um, it's not just having artists for the sake because they're making an interesting looking chair or something like that. There has to be something that I think is really unique and they don't have to be established. Yeah, I represent some really exciting young emerging artists. And what I am trying to do is, is establish a model of a gallery that's based on the traditional gallery, art gallery model, which is representing emerging mid-career and established artists. And to me, that's really important. Uh, uh, In the visual art scene, globally at the moment, there is a very big push by galleries to now just represent established artists. And, you know, that's great for the gallery, but it's not so great, you know, how do then the emerging artists, you know, move up to become mid-career and established? And so that is something that I find, you know, is really, really important to me, that I can provide a platform for artists at all levels of their career.
0: Um, Sally, it must be so exciting when you're not looking and you're really not looking. You, you think you've got a full house or a full list of great work and then you turn the corner. It must might be, you know, really when you, your mind's not really focused in that space and then you see something, oh, my God, I can't believe that. I just have to find out about this artist. Who mm-hmm. comes to mind? locally, that you, you know, someone who really was unknown and for some reason you just made this wonderful discovery and we've kind of got someone now who really would have been unnoticed had it not been for that uh, detour that you made.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there is a couple of, of artists that I could name, but I think Michael Gittings, uh, who is a Melbourne, now Melbourne-based artist, he comes from the border of Aubrey Wodonga. Uh, He moved to Melbourne and was started as a roof plumber. And uh, so he is someone who is not at all um, tertiary trained or art school trained. He has trained um, and honed his skills, and he's still very, very young, um, by learning, you know, basically on, on the roof and working with copper, stainless steel. Um, and learning how to manipulate uh, the material. And I question whether another student who had been through university and gone through sort of the history and um, locked into what was available with the workrooms at university, um, whether they would be at the level he is now technically and with his ability to, to manipulate these materials. And I think he is... Very, very exciting. Um, I sometimes have to, you know, try and contain him because he is like a shotgun going off. He has all these fabulous ideas. And, you know, as his agent um, and mentor, it's my job to try and sort of rein him in and say, okay, let's, they're all really good ideas. Let's just try and focus on this one and do the R&D and let's see how far down we can go with this. Um, You know, and, and I think he is exceptionally talented.
0: Sally, how did you find him? Did, did he kind of bring you up? He wouldn't have run you up because obviously he wouldn't have thought his work work was even in your, near your league. (laughs) So how do you actually, what did, did you see something that he'd made or?
1: I, um, it's really funny because I, um, am someone who, um, has come late to social media. um, but I actually found him on Instagram a number of years ago. Uh, he was exhibiting you know at a market and um, but posting a few things on Instagram and i literally spent you know before the gallery opened and and i probably should preface it with that i was actually approached by artists to open the gallery so i always had it you know i for the past 20 years i'd sort of spent my time saying to artists when they'd asked me to open a gallery will you open a gallery and i would say No, because I've got my advisory and I love representing and being able to work with lots of artists and a gallery in some way you know inhibits that because you have you are responsible for your stable of artists and putting them out to the world Um, and the noise you know over the past five years started getting louder and louder and, and that noise was coming not just from visual artists now but from the the designer functional artists because I had started commissioning them with private clients uh, to make sculptural pieces for their homes and they were excited about that. Um, so So some artists did approach me and i then I approached others, and and so finding Michael on Instagram, there is another Melbourne University and RMIT obviously have really good um, facilities with their their both their architects, Melbourne University they have um, a special section where their top top uh, students can go and um, do I think it's one semester just playing with materials um, that and to make design objects rather than it's sort of a adjunct to their architectural practice and studies. Um, and then obviously the other the other areas of RMIT and other New South Wales art and design that um, are really establishing these young artists um, and designers to come through. So I sort of look at the university's um, students in their final years. I, I find them all sorts of different places.
0: I was going to ask you, Sally, you know, people think um, designer objects or functional art uh, is kind of um, cheap, you know, oh, yeah, it's a mm. good buy, it's cheap. But you made the point in an interview I did with you some time ago that, you know, these creatives are working with quite expensive materials mm. and the time that it takes to produce an item can take months, if not oh, years, some time. And so the prices reflect uh, those the work and and the materials and it's something mm-hmm. that people don't really understand. I mean, obviously, you can't compare it to um, a painter who's built up an established reputation. But uh, you know, paints can be expensive. The canvas is something, but it's generally the the skill of the artist that determines the um, the price. But with functional uh, design and art, it's very difficult to people to get when they walk into your gallery and they go, oh, Sally, $40,000 for an arm why Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you could say that doesn't happen, but I'm sure it does happen. And mm-hmm. it must be frustrating to try and explain to people who don't really know about this kind of new form of art why mm-hmm. the price is the way it is.
1: Yeah. And, in fact, there's two sides to that. So, yes, and I think... Um, COVID has actually, considering I opened just before COVID, really um, been a disadvantage to artists for this because the cost of timber has gone through the roof and the cost of freight has gone through the roof. Since I opened the gallery, freight has gone up eight times. Um, So you can imagine when, you know, if if we take that example of a painter with paints, shipping a canvas... Versus shipping even a side table that's made out of timber or steel, um, just the cost of that alone, let alone the materials, adds to the price. You know, and, the, and these are all things that have to be thought about when they're coming in. Um, so, you know, the timber, yes, has really um, gone up quite a lot and we've had to reprice even in the two years since we've been open um, some, of, of some of the pieces. Uh, so all the pieces, um, not, well, not all the pieces, but a lot of the pieces are unique. They're all made from home. They're not manufactured. So I think that's the first point that people have to understand as well when they're looking at price. We're not talking about someone that comes up with a design that then sends it off to somebody else just to be produced, even in an edition. You know, we're talking about artisans making each piece, even if it's editioned by hand. Um, we've got Olive Gilhills coming up from Perth uh, in a couple of weeks, who is probably uh, one of the most exciting young female woodworkers, and she takes extraordinarily extraordinary lengths. To to find native Western Australian timbers that are also sustainably sourced. So she finds fallen um, or reclaimed timbers uh, and really pushes them to the boundaries um, to what she can do to handle. But she's this, this tiny little thing. And so she's had to actually spend a lot of money and time in her studio, working up systems and pulley systems Um, to actually be able to move and manipulate the timber around. So there's also those sort of considerations, the machinery that they need to buy to actually make their works um, is a lot more than, you know, a painter's hands. Um, So, so yes, sometimes the works do seem expensive, um, but then, you know, it is all of that. But then we also get, on the flip side, people coming in, and seeing something, and they've just been, you know, to one of the big Italian brands, um, and which are beautifully designed but mass-produced for the same money or more. And so then all of a sudden they think the works in the gallery seem actually very good value.
0: Um, Sally, one of my fondest memories is uh, going to London with a huge group, or a very large group, and uh, we all visit the David Gill Gallery. It's one of the, um, uh, it's located mm-hmm. in Mayfair. It represents, you know, the top of top designers in mm-hmm. the world. People like um, uh, the Campana brothers, for example. And I remember going in, and they had this huge lounge. It was extraordinary, mm-hmm. and it was kind of gilt edged, but it was all kind of furry. And uh, the owner, I uh, just, I was think it was David Gill, uh, just said, "Oh no, make yourself at home." Just take a chair and, you know, the price was, you know, $100,000 plus for this one lounge but everyone was kind of lounging on it. Do you, When people come into your gorgeous gallery in Rush Cutters Bay and start trying out the furniture, is that something that makes you anxious or do you just think, no, that's actually uh, the designer would love people to actually experience that or is it just some pieces are really more for show than actually to use?
1: So all the pieces have to be functional. So if we call them functional, they're functional. So a chair is to be sat on. Um, we There are some items that we do have to be careful of because these are unique items. Um, we don't have display models in the gallery. Everything is for sale. So I do have to be mindful of uh, who might acquire these objects that it is in the perfect condition um, for them to take home. Because it's not as if we, you know, have a June sale for display stock or anything like that. You know, you are buying the artist's hand as you would be anything else. And saying that, you know, someone like Olive's timber pieces, they beg to be handled. I mean, part of what she does, she sands and she sands and she sands to make these very tactile pieces, which once you've actually touched you find it very hard to actually leave the gallery because you just want to sit and stroke the stool you're sitting on or sit at the table and rub your hands up and down the tabletop. And she is someone that wants people to do that and her pieces are such that I can allow people to do that. Um, But then if we look at, say, Trent Janssen and Johnny Nalgoda's leather pieces, um, I have to be a little bit cautious there because if you have people that sit down that might have a zipper on their back of their pants or their telephone in their back pocket and they sit down, you know, they could badly damage the leather. And whereas I see this wear, once you have the piece in your house, as something that you actually want. And I'm the sort of person that would go and buy, you know, a a 20-year-old deceased sofa rather than now they're being made new again (laughs) because I want that patina. But when I'm selling in a gallery, I have to allow the person who is the eventual new owner to create that patina for them not to necessarily have it coming out of the, the gallery. Um, so, you know, it's a fine balance of some things, absolutely. Um, you know, the stainless steel objects, of course, things like that. But then some of the more delicate pieces, we do just have to be a little bit more careful. But I would never stop someone sitting in something. Um, you know, it's, it's about the enjoyment. And, yes, all the artists make things. And the joy is, is them bringing that to people. Sally,
0: um, it, this is a generalisation and I think, mm. you know, Australian creatives have their own... Way of thinking, but is there a, a common thread that you think that links the Australian New Zealand contingency of, of creatives? Is there something that perhaps you wouldn't find in a European designer um, that you you find in the work of the of the artists that you represent?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Stephen. Um, I think there is. I think maybe an earthiness and an honesty to the materials and the artists' people. Um, but it doesn't reflect in the end product, in being anything sort of um, crafty or um, provincial. You know, these are very elegant pieces that sit on the international stage without question and you know some of our I, we sell internationally to clients we've sold to a very very major um international architects and design firm um, we get i i would say probably 50 percent of our inquiries are international and 50 percent are local um, which i know blows a lot of the galleries away when you know we're sort of talking and um, and I think that's basically because of the artists that I'm working with and because they do have this international, um, you know, standard that they're working towards. Um, it's not a local, a lo- a local theme. Um, but I do think there is something... Um, I think they're humble, probably, um, and very family and community oriented, which just brings something really warm to the work.
0: Look, Sully, I adore what you're doing. I think it's—I haven't come across this in Australia before. I've—I still remember going to London, and there was the Carpenter's Workshop and the David mm. Hill, and I just thought, how, what a great idea! And obviously, yours is different, and you have different artists, but it is—it uh, is very, very important what you're doing. I mean, not just to broaden people's minds, but also to support. Uh, the local creatives and the artists, because yes. really, what do they do? You know, they you know, if they took some of their work to mainstream showrooms in Australia, they're not going to get a look in. They're going to say, "No way!" You know, we're not going to have something that's what. Well, no, our customers want you know, something that doesn't need any explanation. They just want to sit down on a chair or, or, you know, look at a mirror. They don't want anything slightly left of centre. So what you're doing is very valuable. And, uh, look, it is unfortunate that you started at such an awful time. But we are coming out of this and I think people will be uh, wanting relief and wanting to really... Um, support local creatives. So, um, good luck with everything, Sally. And um, Thank you. Uh, I think it. I think things will start to open up, and I think people will start really wanting more of what you've got to w- what you're offering because it, it's it's just so fresh. So, yeah, thanks definitely. so much, Sally. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at
1: TalkingDesign underscore.